Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Bordeson. My guest today has witnessed a process so disturbing that he warns it will have profound global consequences if it is not stopped. His deep concern prompted him to step out of his comfort zone and write a book about it to sound the alarm. I'm talking about Dr. Nils Mouser, law professor, human rights lawyer, and UN Rapporteur on Torture, who was assigned to look into whether or not WikiLeaks publisher, Julian Assange, had been tortured. Dr. Melzer's book, a searing account of his investigation and findings, is titled The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution. The book is a shocking record documenting egregious abuses of judicial procedure and other corrupt machinations on the parts of four nations that not only resulted in Dr. Melzer's assessment that Assange had indeed been subjected to long-term torture, but that also, he says, now constitute an imminent threat to democracy around the world. He's here today to talk about his findings. Welcome, Nils. Thank you for having me. Give us an overview of what you experienced. I'm the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, which means that I submit complaints to states uh, on you know, alleged uh, cases of torture and all treatment. I do you know, between two and four hundreds of those every year. And usually I get contacted by lawyers, by family members, victims themselves, and, and I then transmit those allegations to states. And I'm just saying this because uh, I, in December 2018, I um, received an email from uh, Julian Assange's legal team. Um, and I immediately had, they asked for my protection because they claimed that his living conditions in the Ecuadorian embassy, uh, where he had sought asylum in London and had spent the past six years, that they had become inhumane and amounted to cruel and inhuman treatment. And I immediately had this visceral reaction of saying, no, I had, this, I had been so poisoned by this whole public narrative that had been spread about Assange for about 10 years that I was incapable of actually having an objective assessment of the case. I immediately had this emotional reaction and actually declined getting into the case. Now, I have to be clear, I receive about 10 to 15 requests a day and I can pursue maybe one. So I, I always have to decide quickly. But I distinctly remember this emotional reaction of, oh, this is this hacker, this traitor, this rapist, he's just going to manipulate me. Uh, I'm not going to do this. And so his lawyers came back three months later, just before he was expelled from the embassy, saying that, you know, they were really concerned that he might be uh, expelled and immediately surrender to the United States, where he would be exposed to an unfair trial. And they also sent some pieces of evidence uh, along, uh, including a medical assessment by uh, a U.S. Uh, um, um, medical expert, uh, Sandra Crosby, who's an independent doctor, very respected doctor who had uh, visited Guantanamo and had been specialized in, in examining torture victims. She was not an Assange activist. And she came to the conclusion, she had visited him in the embassy and examined him and came to the conclusion that his living conditions indeed violated the Convention Against Torture. Now, I, I remember I thought, well, how, you know, how, how can living in an embassy with a cat and a skateboard and so on be you know, torture? But then I thought, well, if an independent medical expert of that kind of category of credibility comes to that conclusion, I better look into the case. And I realized very quickly that I can't rely on information I find in the internet. I can't really rely on the, on the authorities. I can't really rely on Assange activists either because I really don't know, you know, uh, what's, what's, what are the facts? This case is so politicized. It's been around for a decade. I really have to go to London take my own medical team and visit him in the embassy initially. And then uh, I, I, that wasn't possible because as soon as he announced the visit, he was basically three days later, he was expelled from the embassy. So I ended up visiting, visiting him in Belmarsh Prison in London in May 2019, and about four think, weeks after his arrest. Do you think that was not a coincidence? We know today that his expulsion had been planned for a long time, but that it happened so fast uh, on the 11th of April, and I had announced my visit on the 8th of April. I announced to the British and to the Ecuadorian embassy, I was coming to London, I was going to investigate this case on behalf of the UN. And I asked them to freeze the situation for about two weeks. So uh, I announced my visit for the 25th of, of April. And then within three days, 
he was expelled from the embassy with no legal proceeding. I mean, no advance warning. Um, his asylum was withdrawn. His, his nationality was withdrawn. Yes, of course. Now, you know, once you receive political asylum by a state, you have a status, a legal status. It can be revoked, but that's a legal proceeding in any democracy ruled, you know, by the, the rule of law. You have a appeal, you have a, you know, a lawyer can represent you, you can present your arguments, and the court will have to decide whether your asylum can be revoked or not. And in his case, the ambassador uh, of Ecuador just appeared in his you know, in his room at 10 o'clock in the morning on the 11th of April saying your, your asylum has been revoked by the president of Ecuador. And by the way, your nationality, your Ecuadorian nationality, which had been given to him a year before, uh, has also been suspended. And, uh, and because the Ecuadorian constitution prohibits the extradition of, of nationals, so they had to suspend his nationality too. And within an hour, he had to leave the embassy and Obviously, he refused, and then the British police was invited into the embassy, and then they dragged him out and brought him uh, first to the police station, then immediately in front of a criminal judge, where he had not, it wasn't a, you know, a question of his arrest. He was, he was actually having a criminal trial already scheduled for him that afternoon uh, uh, for Based the, on what? Uh, of the alleged offense of having violated the bail conditions of the British court uh, seven years earlier. When is he that a was crime about, or like a misdemeanor? Well, it's, it is an offense uh, and, and obviously depends on how much harm you've caused. In his case, clearly, um, he had sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy uh, because he didn't want to be extradited to Sweden because he feared that he would be extradited onwards to the U.S. without a proper legal proceeding. Now, that was not baseless. Uh, Sweden has a history of doing that. Uh, they've, they've actually handed over people to the CIA in Sweden without any legal proceeding who were then sent to Egypt to be tortured. And, uh, and, and so he, he had you know, all reasons to be afraid the Swedish would be doing something similar with him because Sweden is a very, very close ally to the US. So he had a, a fair case and in terms of a fair, a fair reason for um, jumping bail or whatever he had a fair concern right a fair concern. Could, could, right and so what he did he didn't just jump bail uh, he actually asked the swedish says, i'm coming to sweden but please just give me a guarantee that you will not send me onward to the u.s because sweden asked for his extradition in relation to uh, allegations of sexual offenses and he said i'm i'm absolutely you know prepared and willing and, and you know to stand the trial and, and to answer all the questions um, and should I be charged to stand trial in Sweden on those charges because I, I under those allegations? Uh, but but I'm not I don't I'm not ready to come to Sweden if then I run the risk to be sent to the U.S. Uh, and Sweden refused to give those guarantees. And I have to have to be very clear here. That's giving this type of guarantee is standard practice, you know, in international wow. affairs. And uh, I mean. Just think of the U.S. They have just given guarantees in the extradition trial uh, of Assange in London, and and you know many many uh, cases are resolved like this, where where states um, uh, basically are concerned that if they extradite a person to a specific country, that he might be extradited onwards to a place where he might be tortured or his human rights might be not be respected, and so states give diplomatic That's assurances. That term of Yes, if you if that's in international law, it's prohibited to to extradite or surrender or you know someone to human rights violations in a different jurisdictions. You can't send someone to a different jurisdiction where their human rights might be under serious risk. So, in order to avoid that, either you don't extradite them or you ask for guarantees by that country. And, can, and governments can give those guarantees. But Sweden always you know, made up some rules why they couldn't give those guarantees. Clearly, they wanted to keep you know, that option open. When you say that, it makes me think, okay, they, they normally do this uh, and they have procedures and rules for doing this. And then all of a sudden, they don't pay attention to those procedures and rules. Is that, are they going against their own laws doing that? I mean, it seems to me that well, that keeps happening in this case. Well, guarantees uh, are, that's a sovereign decision. The government can either do that or not. But 
clearly, if they don't give the guarantees, then, you know, Julian Assange in this case had good reasons to, to be concerned and right. not to risk his extradition because so that, that really kind of implied in international practice that Sweden wanted to keep that option open. And so he had, he was absolutely justified in seeking asylum in Ecuadorian embassy and the Ecuadorian uh, government at the time also accepted that that risk was serious and they gave him diplomatic asylum uh, for, for seven years. And I think that was, that, that, that's really important that we know that he did not just jump bail. He actually tried to secure his human rights through normal procedures, asking for guarantees repeatedly. The governments refused, so then he sought asylum. You know, okay. many, many uh, dissidents in other countries have done the same. I mean, after the Tiananmen massacre, Chinese dissidents uh, sought asylum in the U.S. embassy. And yeah, but he's not embassy, even a dissident. He's, he's a publisher who's, who's being... Uh, persecuted for uh, exposing uh, crimes, state crimes to the public. So sure, I, he's, I, he's I agree in, with in you. a category of his own in a way. I mean, sure, just, just he, even objectively, he's not, he, sure, he, he's it, not it against really the United matter. States government. He's not against this government or that government. He's a publisher and he's putting out uh, he's putting out evidence of crime. I'm just explaining that that's the legal framework. So right, if, if, right. if you're being prosecuted by a state and you fear that your human rights will not be respected by that prosecuting state, you're not evading justice if you seek protection in a different right. jurisdiction. Right. You're just trying to secure real rights. And even when he was at the embassy, I mean, Julian Assange's lawyers have assured to me that they have repeatedly offered to the Swedish government that Julian Assange would come out of the embassy if only they gave those guarantees. And also he said, well, if you don't want to give those guarantees, he's going to answer all your questions in the embassy or through video link or through phone, you know, interviews. And here here we also have to make very clear that Julian Assange was not charged of any crime. He never was charged in Sweden. He, He was just alleged and so he was, he was, you know, he, they, they asked for his extradition so he would answer questions uh, as a Oh, yeah, they couldn't do that by Zoom or something? They couldn't do that by Skype well, or whatever? Well, the, there's a mutual legal assistance agreement between the UK and Sweden that foresees precisely these types of interviews through phone uh, or video link or where the Swedish process prosecutor comes to London or the British prosecutor comes to Stockholm, depending on the case, um, to conduct those uh, those interviews. So that's absolutely possible and has been practiced in many other cases. But in his case, that was consistent. What was the prosecutor's reason for refusing that? I've really looked very deeply into that because I, I do speak Swedish. So so I could I could actually investigate all and read all those those documents that were made accessible to me. And and the prosecutor actually lied in public that the Swedish law prohibited her from doing that. And that was simply not true. In fact, a couple of years later, the Supreme Court and the Swedish uh, Supreme Court actually forced her to go to London and to question him there. But she initially claimed that that was not possible and that for reasons such, you know, as for technical reasons that she never specified, he needed to be in, in Sweden. Clearly, she just wanted to get him over to Sweden. Uh, and, and without giving guarantees, he might not be handed over to the U.S. And at the same time, and, and uh, Julian Assange knew that because obviously it was, it was, there was evidence of it in the diplomatic cables, the Swedish intelligence agencies actually cooperated with the U.S. intelligence agencies behind the back of the Swedish public and the Swedish parliament, um, you know, there's correspondence confirming where the Swedish government basically asks the US government not to publicly speak about that cooperation because otherwise it might be prohibited then by the Swedish parliament and the public. So there clearly was this whole murky area of intelligence cooperation where uh, Julian Assange was absolutely justified in, in looking for, you know, asking for that asylum. So, Clearly, he was then expelled, and I visited him then with a medical team in Belmarsh Prison in in London. I just uh, want to note before you talk about everything that um, about about your visit with him is how you mentioned in your book 
that when he was dragged out of the embassy, they had made sure that he didn't have access to razors or anything so that he would look the way he did when he came out. He was, he, I mean, yeah. he looked like a crazy old man or something. When I visited him, that was about four weeks after his arrest. And we all remember those, those images of him oh, yeah. with this beard and, you know, and, 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 and long hair, how he was being dragged out of the embassy. And, and when I visited him, he was absolutely tidy, you know? So, so, so I asked him, you know, what happened? And he said, well, you know, three months before uh, the expulsion, they, 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 I mean, the security personnel of the Ecuadorian embassy, they took my, my shaving kit away. So I, I couldn't shave for, for, you know, for three months. And that was intentional, apparently. So you, because it's much easier to, uh, to violate someone's rights if he doesn't look you know, uh, like a normal yeah, person. Yeah, he looks to, like a homeless be, guy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah. Um, let's get to your visit. I visited him on the 9th of May in Belmarsh Prison, uh, and I took a medical team with me because I, I knew I was going to get into a very politicized case. Uh, I mean, I just, my own reaction initially, uh, you know, <laughs> told, you know, stories about about the perception of this man in, in the general public. But even by getting into Belmarsh and even before, didn't they delay yeah. you? And then at Belmarsh, they put you through yeah, so, this, uh, I, I mean, I, the, the, the book harassment. goes into all those details. How I, 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 I initially thought this is going to be a, a small case. You know, I'm going to request a visit. He's now in British custody. You know, Britain is a rule of law country. Uh, that's not going to be a problem. He might have some medical issues. I'll make some recommendations and then he'll get a fair trial. He won't be extradited to the US and everything's fine. But then I saw that yeah, I requested the visit. I requested officially the government of Ecuador and Britain to freeze the situation for two weeks so I could investigate the case. He'd been in the embassy for almost seven years. I mean, there was no reason for him to be expelled, you know, within three days. And then and then 24 hours before he was expelled, the British ambassador in Geneva still wrote a letter to me saying that my idea that he might be expelled and extradited to the US was pure speculation and oh. that they couldn't engage on you know, these topics with me. And, and less than 24 hours later, he was actually expelled. And we know today that his expulsion had been planned for about half a year. So, so I noticed very quickly that the governments were not honest with me. And now I'm not an activist or a journalist or, you know, an NGO person. Um, I'm, I'm mandated by states. So I'm not saying that you should be lying to, to activists and journalists, but I'm just saying if states appoint someone like me through the United Nations to report to them allegations of torture and ill-treatment uh, in a cooperative spirit, then... Obviously, I would rely on them, you know, for cooperating with me and actually being transparent with me. But very quickly, I realized that that they were playing a double game. You know, they were you're basically not truthful to me, and that really raised my suspicion. I said, "What's so important about this?" Hey, I mean, if Assange is a traitor and a rapist and so on, what what's the big fuss? I mean, just you know, put him on trial and convict him. Uh, but I quickly realized that something was not right. And so I scratched the surface of this case. And the deeper I got into it, the more dirt came out. But it was not on the side of Assange. It was on the side of the governments. And so, you know, initially, I just wanted to go and, and evaluate his prison conditions, his state of health. I did that. I took two specialized doctors with me who specialized in in, in examining torture victims, a psychiatrist and a forensic doctor. And independently from each other, uh, they, uh, they examined him. We had a total of four hours with him on the 9th of May, 2019. And both of them came to the conclusion that he showed all the symptoms that are typical uh, you know, for a victim uh, of psychological torture. What and I also symptoms? have, I can't disclose the precise diagnosis oh. because of the medical confidentiality, but, but by and large, really what we're talking about is extremely elevated stress levels. It's not the stress that any prisoner has, you know, because it's, a, it's, it's obviously a tense situation to be in a prison and be on trial and so on. But we're talking extremely elevated. That's the person doesn't sleep anymore. They're showing neurological uh, impairments already, cognitive impairments that are typical of people that are, you know, intelligent, but they're basically isolated and, you know, their thoughts are spinning in circles. They're under constant fear and anxiety 
in this case, the threat scenario obviously was, was the extradition to the US and what expected in there. Um, and the constant arbitrariness of the environment destabilizes a person's identity. It doesn't sound terrible you know, for someone who's enjoying normal living conditions, but you know, perhaps the COVID lockdowns gives us a little bit of a taste what it means to be uh, isolated. Now, this is much more extreme. You know, you're under serious threat well, uh, the constantly CIA for years. Itself, the CIA, who, you know, they know a little bit about torture. They, they say that isolation is, is one of the most effective forms of torture. It absolutely is because we're social beings. And so isolation is the first thing that torturers do with the torture victim. Whether it's physical torture or psychological torture, the first thing you do is to isolate the victim from positive influence. So they become dependent on their torturers emotionally and for everything they need physically. And then you make us conditional on, you know, respecting certain rules. And then you, you change the rules all the time. You, you move the goalposts. So the, the person becomes destabilized. Then you start humiliating them, accusing them of things they can't defend themselves against. And this kind of erodes the personality over time. And, and, and then clearly in, in his case, you know, uh, this over years, has has severely destabilized his his state of health and and, and we could really have a, a we could really tell and uh, already physically measure uh, the impairments that had resulted from that uh, that ill treatment and and so so uh, then I thought well how is that possible again for someone who's lived in an embassy you know I mean it was always presented as a luxurious hiding place and so I started investigating. Well, why was he in the embassy in the first place? And I looked at the Swedish proceedings and I started seeing that things don't add up there either in Sweden. And, 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 and then I saw that the way he was being expelled by Ecuador um, and the way he was being arrested by the British and convicted within you know, a 15 minute trial where he didn't have the time to prepare himself, where he was insulted by the judge that he, you know, you're a narcissist that can't get beyond your, you know, his own selfish interests. But Julian Assange had not said anything in this hearing except I plead not guilty. How, you know, how is the judge wow. insulting him? Wow. And, and then he was being sentenced to a sentence of 50 weeks in prison for violating the bail conditions. And, and he had an actual legal justification for doing that. What are but the that usual sentencing guidelines? Let's say he, were, he had been uh, guilty of that. What are the usual uh, sentencing guidelines? Well, you don't, usually you don't get a, a prison sentence for bail oh. jumping. Oh. I mean, it, it can't, obviously, if you're, you know, if you're a, a murderer and you've been, you know, uh, you've been, or suspected yeah, of it, yeah, and, yeah. or, or, or I mean, then you probably won't be given bail in the first place. But I'm saying, if, if you're suspected of a serious crime, and and then you or you commit a serious crime while jumping bail, then clearly the punishment will be much more serious. But for someone like him who's non-violent, I mean, he he had what he had published true information about government misconduct, um, even if we assume that the U.S. Uh, criminal trial against him is legitimate, which I'm not saying, I, in my opinion, it's not, it's, not, it's not a viable accusation and certainly not with all the violations that have happened. But even if you presume for the purpose of the argument that this is a legitimate criminal trial, um, this justification he had to, to avoid extradition to Sweden is absolutely objectively given and was actually implicitly confirmed by the first instant judge in the UK now in January last year when she refused to extradite Julian Assange because she said uh, his treatment in the US you know, would be uh, inhumane, he would not be able to sustain that and would likely commit suicide. So clearly his fear was, was confirmed by, by at least the first instance judge. And so, so I think we, we, what we can see just by and large is a completely disproportionate and arbitrary treatment by Ecuador, by the UK uh, after his arrest, uh, already during obviously his, his, his stay at the embassy, but also before by Sweden. So wherever I looked in all the jurisdictions where Julian Assange had been exposed to some legal proceedings, his, his uh, due process rights had been severely violated and in a grotesque manner, and systematically at all stages of every proceeding, and 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 he was he was never corrected by a, you know a higher instance. So 
that really shocked me. And so that really caused me to open the books and say, I really have to look into this because something is deeply wrong in this case. And uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, my concerns were, were confirmed. Let's talk about the Swedish part. What are the most egregious decisions made by whom and what possible redress could there be for that? I mean, for no. right now, all charges have been dropped. There have not even been tra- any charges. It's just allegations. Oh, there are no, so all, all allegations have been dropped then. Yes. Right? And I, I think what's really important is because Sweden was a turning point. I mean, in, in 2010, in April, uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange published a collateral murder video. That's infamous video where we see U.S. soldiers gunning down unarmed, uh, you know, civilians. Yeah, but you in, know, in don't underestimate too the WikiLeaks um, of of um, the DNC documents. Do not underestimate. Sure, but that's that's 2016. But let me quickly no, get into I'm because just talking that's about in, yeah, the of course, one. yeah, I know. But if you look at 2010 in Sweden, why was Julian Assange in Sweden in the first place? Well, he, he had just published a collateral murder video in April. Then in July, he had published the Afghan war diary, 90,000 documents on the Afghan war. And so, so the U.S. was really in high alert because more publications had been announced. And, and so, so, so they were really in a panic mode of, you know, what, what's going to happen? How, how much information is there? Will this, will this take an end? Or, you know, so... Or, or if, if you let this guy loose, or you know, what what does that mean uh, for 2011 and 12 and so on? So clearly, in summer 2010, the Western Security Alliance was in high alert. Julian Assange was looking for a safe place for WikiLeaks uh, to be based, and right. so he went to Sweden because he wanted to establish WikiLeaks there because Sweden had the strongest uh, press freedom protections in Europe. It was a safe haven, basically, for press freedom. Wow. And so that's, that's why he was there. And the Swedish government must have been uh, frightened, you know, because once WikiLeaks is established under the constitution of Sweden, even the government can't touch it anymore. But they're a close ally of the U.S. It's a small country that really is basically just implementing U.S. security policy. And so, so that's the, 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 the stakes at the time he comes to Sweden to to give a seminar. And at the time, in, in those weeks, within a week, he had two sexual encounters, voluntary ones, I mean, on both sides, uh, also on the women's side, with two women separately from each other. And um, in the course of those sexual encounters, apparently, you know, unprotected uh, intercourse happened without the agreement of those women. And so they um, went to, uh, they asked him first to take an HIV test. They did not want to report a crime. They, they were just afraid they might have contracted you know, yeah, well, you uh, know, uh, HIV. You know, why did they go to the police station to, about an well, HIV because, and I, I think we have to be, you know, that it is, it is a fact that Julian Assange in, in initially refused to take an HIV test because oh, it was okay. just, well, I don't hate you. I don't, it was not very sensitive about this apparently. Oh, okay. So he okay. said, I, I don't have time, you know, I have to save the world basically. And I can't, I can't now, you know, lose time taking an HIV test. And they asked him, they insisted. And so one of them, uh, you know, proposed to the other, well, let's go, let's go to the police and, and uh, let's force him to take an HIV test. Because that's what they wanted. So why didn't so the they just were, take the HIV test? You know, because at the time, apparently, you know, it took three months to get the results. And so they, you can see in the, the text messages that they exchanged that they didn't want to wait for three months to get oh, the results. Okay. And you know, fair, fair, fair enough. enough. I mean, they were, they were afraid, and and he, and, and I think it is in this context, it's it's they didn't know that at the time and the world didn't know that we know it now because it has been presented in court that Julian Assange has been diagnosed with Asperger's which is a slight form of 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 autism Autism. which typically typically also and I experienced that also when I interviewed him typically means that he doesn't he doesn't uh, uh, take clues non-verbal clues very well from from people you know that he's with he you have to verbalize things so he he knows what you want. Right. If you don't verbalize things, he doesn't he doesn't sense it. It's just he's too closed into in, in himself. He's very intelligent, and once you tell him what what you want, you verbalize it. It's no problem. But now I think that that might have been also part of the of, of the issue that that uh, he was obviously in, in a high stress 
period, uh, having published all those publications and so on. And so he was under pressure. He should have responded clearly. He should have responded positively and taken that test. He didn't. So they, they went to the police. And now what's really interesting is that what we can see is the police immediately picks this up. But they're not, they're, they're, they're not actually doing what the women want. They don't even, it, there's no protocol in the police documents that actually takes even note of what the women wanted. And they clearly wanted an HIV test. And we have evidence of that because they exchanged text messages and emails and so on that, that really show that that's what they wanted. And, and so they, they go to the police and the police just writes down that they came to report a rape. And, and they announce, even before finishing the interviews with the women, that they have uh, issued an arrest warrant for rape uh, against Assange. And then the women get really nervous and distraught, and that's not what they wanted. And, 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 and so we can see you know, text messages between those women where they're really upset about how they have been uh, misled by the police. And the police uh, does not even give them a chance to, to correct that, but they immediately leak the information to the, to the press that uh, um, you know, an arrest warrant for two cases of rape have been issued against Turin Hassan. And so, so the women are immediately pushed into the defensive where, where they really can't, can't change that narrative anymore. And, uh, wow. and that, that is, um, is, is really very shocking to see because the Swedish law actually prohibits the publication of a suspect's name before he or she has been charged. And the Swedish police immediately leaked this, or the prosecutor rather, immediately leaked this to the press. And clearly, as soon as this was out in the press, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the narrative was there. Didn't they also the change the statement of one of the women? Like, they just, like... Well, there ha and there has been plenty afterwards of irregularities. So, um, it, well, I mean, there's plenty of detail. If you want all the detail, read the book. But yeah, the book yes, the, one, yeah. one of the statements... Shocking, shocking I mean, details. What we can see is that none of the women's or the, the initial statements by the women and by all of the witnesses that were close to the women that would be supportive of the women. None of them was, uh, was recorded on tape. None of them was uh, written down word by word, but they were all summarized by the interviewing police officer and then given to confirm by signature by those women. Uh, but what, 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 you know, for, for a, an investigative professional, you can, you can immediately see the danger of this, because when you do that, you cannot see the questions that were asked by the police officer. It's just a summary. So if you yeah, ask leading questions, yep. yes, if you ask leading questions, guiding questions, manipulative questions, uh, you, you cannot be seen that way, you right. see. But, but the interview with Assange and with witnesses that were likely to be supportive of him, they were recorded word by word uh, because there was a lawyer present and they insisted on it. And they did not, they were not ready to just sign off on any, uh, you know, what, just about anything. But you can see that, you know, there were seven interviews that were taken, um, uh, all that were all used then against Julian Assange, that none of them has been recorded. And there was no witness. Usually you have a second witness, you know, uh, witnessing the interview to observe it. Uh, and, and it was always like a phone interview or an interview conducted by a single officer and then summarized by that officer. And then we also have correspondence, internal correspondence by the police proving that um, the, the woman, the police officer that uh, conducted the interview with one of the women, she was asked to revise that, to change that interview after it had been uh, concluded. And, and she was very nervous about it. We don't know exactly what has been changed. Uh, but we know that she was felt very uncomfortable about this because she writes back, well, this is not correct. And, you know, then we have two different interviews and what, what do you mean? And, you know, uh, so she, she clearly had the impression that she was doing something that's not, not you know, not right. Um, and, and, and so these things, I think, are, are very, very suspicious. What I don't understand is if, if there are no more, if there are no charges anymore, um, what does this bail thing matter? And therefore, I, 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 don't under, I don't understand how this process could even continue 
what's really important is to see that there has, he has never been charged of a crime. In Sweden, you have first a preliminary observation, uh, investigation, preliminary investigation where the police basically asks questions. They call a suspect to an interview. And then if the information given by the suspect and by witnesses, uh, you know, uh, confirm the suspicion, so then they will press charges, you know. Uh, but, but, but this was actually never done in his case. For nine years, the prosecution service maintained preliminary, uh, um, you know, kind of allegations against him. Uh, and they also, which really is important, he never tried to evade justice. As soon as the press published those allegations, he canceled his departure from Sweden which was scheduled for three days later. And he, he extended his stay in Sweden for more than a month so he would be able to respond to those allegations. And he actually presented himself to the police personally and said, well, I want to, you know, I want to cooperate with this. And, and it was the Swedish authorities that avoided involving him. So they, ha- they questioned him once in, initially. But as soon as they, you know, they, they realized that, that the evidence was very weak against him, uh, they avoided any further interviews because then after that, they would have had to conclude, well, we don't have enough evidence to charge him and they would have to stop the proceeding. But if this is but, the case, why are we here now? That's really interesting because that's the only thing that he was accused of or alleged you know, to have, the only crime he was alleged to have committed initially Today, and we have to state that very clearly, the Swedish prosecution service has uh, dropped all those allegations in 2019 after he had been arrested by the British. And the, not because those allegations had expired, they had not, they had not expired. There was another one and a half years where they could prosecute them, him on those, on those allegations. But they decided they did not have sufficient evidence even to press charges at okay, a moment. So why did he... Why did the British still hold him then, based on, oh, you jump bail? The bail violation is, is, is a violation of, of British law. And so they gave him the, uh, close to the maximum sentence they could. Okay, the so purpose, he served, did he serve his sentence? Yes, but the purpose of this was to hold him to give the U.S. enough time to, uh, to develop their, their extradition request. Because that was actually what was behind all of this but, is clearly that the U.S. Wanted, wanted him. Yeah. Okay. But I guess what I'm trying to ask, I'm trying to get what is legal about this whole thing. Nothing. Nothing. Oh, and I say this um, as a lawyer. I mean, not, they're not, they don't even have a fig leaf. Like, what's their fig leaf? No. 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 Look, he's currently he's being accused of espionage in the U.S. That's uh, he, the, the yeah. Swedish allegations have been dropped. He has not been convicted on any charges. The only thing he's ever been convicted for is a bail violation for, so for which he clearly had, right. Go ahead. He had a justification. So, so as soon as he was in British hands, I mean, within an hour, the U.S. submitted his extradition request, uh, which always had been no, claimed, no, the U.S. is not going to prosecute you. You know, you're, you're, you're paranoid staying in this embassy. And he was always afraid of this. And lo and behold, within an hour, when he was out of the embassy, the U.S. submitted this extradition request. On, on, at, in the beginning, it was on a, on a so-called hacking charge. Uh, and then within a, a few weeks, they extended it to 18 charges, including 17 under the Espionage Act, for only receiving and disclosing uh, secret national security information, which is clearly what investigative journalists do all the time. So this is what he's accused of. And that's, that's the big story here is clearly also that the other states that cooperated with the U.S., Sweden and the U.K. are very, very close allies uh, of the U.S. They're not interested in having uh, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange disclosing their secrets either. So, you know, it's not just the U.S. behind it. It's in a whole conglomerate of governments. Well, he's a danger who, to the power elite, power and political elite all around the world. There's no doubt about that. Certainly, as long as they operate based on secrecy and in the shadows of that secrecy and commit serious crimes, so they they try to secure their impunity. Now, if if we argued that those states are acting in good faith, well, then look at what they have done with the evidence regarding war crimes and torture, which clearly, I mean, whatever you say about Assange, you know, 
he has not tortured and he has not murdered anybody, uh, but he has provided evidence of, of, of state officials doing that. None of those crimes has been prosecuted. Well, of course, None because of they can. Yes, this is the crazy making part of it. But let's go back to something else, too. OK, while he was in the Ecuadorian embassy, now they they hired this Spanish group, right, to um, to illegally well, this is a security company. Security it was a security company. company that's just guarded the embassy, just like any embassy has a security company usually guarding you know, uh, its premises. They had a company called UC Global that was hired by the Ecuadorian embassy, but uh, uh, that cooperated behind the back of the Ecuadorian government, cooperated with the CIA and okay. actually provided it with video streaming 24-7 on Julian Assange. So they surveilled him while he was meeting with his lawyers, which is illegal. Yes. I mean, the surveillance itself was illegal, but this was, okay, illegal number two, okay? And that is supposed to have an effect on the extradition, whether they can extradite or not too, doesn't it? I mean, legally. Well, it certainly has, a, it certainly has an effect on whether they can, you know, the, the criminal trial against him is not viable because the equality of arms has been severely violated because he his his meetings not only with, with medical doctors but also as you said with his lawyers have been recorded and those recordings have been provided to the to the u.s intelligence uh, services so clearly you know that the, the 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 this has so severely affected the fairness of the trial already before the trial has started that basically it's no longer it's no longer viable. Uh, this case has to be thrown out only based already on that surveillance. But that's not the only thing. We know now since the Yahoo article, the latest, we know that that the CIA apparently even planned his kidnapping, you know, you know his his rendition or or, or even his assassination. And uh, you know, how can you extradite a person to a country that actually planned his assassination? I mean. This is, is, is really important that we get those, that those facts uh, straight. What are the details of the planning of his assassination, do you know? Well, there have been details that emerged in a criminal trial against the security company in Spain. It's a Spanish security company, so there's a criminal trial you know, against them in Spain for that surveillance. But also the Yahoo investigative article disclosed that apparently uh, his assassination was discussed as a option by the CIA, but apparently they they considered it not to be a safe uh, a safe solution to whatever problem they had with Julian Assange. They decided not to do it. But but clearly, you know, when we're when we're being outraged about you know uh, Navalny being poisoned uh, by by uh, Russian security agents, well. Uh, you know, the U.S. seemed to plan the same thing with, with Assange. So uh, I think the same outrage is justified uh, here. And, um, and, and then also the question simply is, if, if a country does not prosecute its war criminals, it, it does not prosecute its torturers, it prosecutes the people that provide evidence for those crimes, what does this tell us about you know, uh, the understanding of justice in that country. I mean, what are we telling our children? Uh, you know, it's, it's wrong to tell the truth, but it's okay to go around the world and murder people. I mean, that's, I mean, I, you know, very fundamentally, there's obviously something wrong here. And the problem is, is, is this uh, deadly uh, double standard is imposed on other nations around the world by the United States uh, when they want something taken care of and they want Julian taken care of. I, you know, before I move on to uh, Baritzer's uh, circus, I think it was a circus. I, you know, you can tell me otherwise, but you were cer you're certainly privy to more details on that than I. Um, is there no law or nothing in the judicial system anywhere in the world that recognizes what what might be a slow murder. Look, I mean, the law is being instrumentalized here by by the powerful to serve their purposes, and they're doing it in a you know in a way that that is, is disguised you know basically by presenting uh, Assange as the suspected rapist. So this this rape allegations were artificially maintained 
you know, by the Swedish uh, prosecution service. They did not want, you know, they didn't do that in the interest of the women, because as I said, the, the women initially didn't want to do any part of that. You know, there are text messages where one of the women writes, you know, uh, I, you know, I didn't want to accuse him of anything. I just wanted an HIV test. I didn't want to have anything to do with this, but now I have no choice. Basically, that's her words. No, but you know? my point too is, is, is this torture business. I mean, you, you, first of all, this, your previous, a colleague before the two, the two uh, physicians that you went in with said he was being tortured. And then you went in and you said he was being tortured. I mean, yes. if you torture somebody for long enough, they're going to die. And he clearly yes. is not, he's been severely debilitated. And that's what I mean by the slow murder. We're, we're over 10 years into this now. And every time people see this guy, he's worse and worse. And, you know, it's, 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 if they turn, you know, turn him into a vegetable, basically they've achieved their ends, you know, because he can't think properly anymore and he's physically completely debilitated or if they completely physically debilitate him so he can no longer do anything or think properly. To me, that's some sort of form of slow murder. How do you, of course, you know, of course it is, of course it is, but they're, they're setting an example with him and all of this is intended. I mean, you know, once I go in, with a medical team as a UN rapporteur, and I, I, I report back to the governments, and they don't take any measures, from then on it's deliberate. I mean, the latest, from then on we know it's deliberate, you know, because well, until yeah. then, per, you know, perhaps they have to, they have to, you know, they, they have to, the plausible deniability. But once I've been in there and I've, I've, I've written my official, you know, I've expressed my, my concerns officially to the governments, and they don't take any measures, it means it's deliberate. And so clearly what's going on here is here is someone who has put in danger the business as usual based on secrecy and impunity of governments. And now they want to set an example, you know, if it, so you, people like you will be scared to publish this type of information in the future. That's what they want. So if I gave you a USB stick today with the collateral murder video number two, and the next 250,000 diplomatic cables, are you going to publish it or are you going to have a close look at what's happening to the Julian Assange in the last 10 oh, years? Yeah. It's clearly a warning, you know? So it's, it's, it's inti the intimidation is already working. The yeah. precedent has already been set and the public is accepting it or tolerating it because they think Julian Assange is the bad guy based on the DNC leaks, based on the rape allegations and no one really looks behind the scenes of what's the real story yep. and, and, and how those issues are being instrumentalized. You know? So much of the US public population thinks wrongly that Julian Assange is their enemy. You know? so, but but, but you know, that he has put you know, Trump in office. Uh, you know, I mean, he, has, he doesn't even have a voting right. You know? and, and he's basically, all he has done throughout his career is basically publish truthful information about yeah, he has a better record than virtually any other <laughs> any other press outlet but in the world. That's <laughs> what what's scaring them. Yeah, yeah, you see, because they run their government's business in an unlawful well, way. Well, and they control a lot of the, the the mainstream press, certainly here in the United States. Of course, is, is of course, so, of course. So, so that's that's obviously why WikiLeaks came up because the yeah. mainstream press has basically fa failed to fulfill its function as the fourth estate. So now we have, you know, new actors like WikiLeaks coming up and doing it, and governments are not happy about it. That's oh, why we also happy. Yes, and it's not just the U.S. You know, all all yeah. the you know well, the governments that's why they're are willing to help. I'm sure. I want to talk about the uh, the court, the hearing, the extradition hearing, uh, where Judge Baratzer was in charge. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously it's, it's a long proceeding that has been going on, and and it, it, Judge Baratzer was the first instance judge who, in January last year, decided that she would not extradite at least for now at the time uh, during Assange, but she had confirmed um, uh, all of the the U.S. Uh, legal arguments, and that's what the U.S. obviously uh, found very was very important and valuable to them. That's what they wanted. They wanted to set that precedent that the court basically decided that, yes, 
what Julian Assange is accused of is espionage. And yes, it's, it's a crime and it's not a political offense. And he, you know, is not protected by press freedom. So they really set that whole precedent that will criminalize people like you and other journalists if ever they were to do what Julian Assange has done. But then they said, the, the judge said, we're not going to extradite him because of his medical you know, condition because he might commit suicide in the US. And now obviously that proceeding, that preceded that, that, that judgment um, was riddled with, with very serious uh, you know, due process violations and interpretations of the law that are simply not sustainable. Could I mean, you give be, a couple of examples? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the public was largely excluded from those trials. Uh, there, could, there was no independent observers. Uh, there were 40 observers that had a, a permission to observe the, the trial. But on the, the first the first decision she took once she opened the, the hearing is to withdraw that permission. So all those observers were not able to follow the trial. Um, we had, you know, the U.S. and the U.K. has a treaty, uh, an extradition treaty that excludes, prohibits extraditions for political offenses in this Article 4. So the quintessential example of a political offense is espionage. So clearly, Julian Assange cannot lawfully be extradited by the UK to the US based on their, their own treaty. You know, it's the, these two countries concluded. And so now the judge has, I mean, they, she went through a contortionist kind of legal acrobatics to interpret that treaty as something that she couldn't apply. I mean, if, you know, the only what? purpose of an extradition treaty is to be applied to extradition cases. How but then she that? said, but then she says, I'm an English judge. I can only apply English law. And the treaty is an international piece of international law. I can't apply international law, so I can't apply the treaty. I mean, it was absolute, I have That's to, absurd. sorry. Have, it's, it, it was ridiculous. But it, these types of arguments, I mean, it's, 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 it's a succession of these types of arguments in that trial. But what's important is that she came to that conclusion. So the US is right legally, but I'm not going to extradite Julian Assange for now because he might commit suicide, which I did a press release the day after and said, so the next thing that's going to happen is that the US will give assurances that they will treat him well. And then the next instance will extradite it. I predicted that the day after, and it's exactly what happened in October last year, the high court, I mean, the US in the meantime submitted assurances that they would treat him well. And, and the high court then said, well, this removes our concerns and therefore we can extradite him. So it's very predictable what's going on it's here. It's like judicial is, malfeasance, you know, it's like, Okay. Well, it's 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 not a fair trial, you know. It's nothing to do with with with, with justice. I mean, it's it's a, just... they don't even. She didn't even apply their own laws, so, so you know that no. that is that's no. that's sort of the bottom but line neither, of corruption but neither, right there. But neither did neither did Sweden, right? You know, right. neither did Ecuador. They were not allowed to extradite him because he was an Ecuadorian citizen. This is prohibited by the Ecuadorian constitution. Right. Sweden was not allowed to publish his name. They had a duty to question him. They were not allowed to, to, to you know, to refuse those, uh, those, those, uh, uh, to, to hear him. Uh, and, 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 but what, as, that's why I'm saying consistently in all jurisdictions, in all legal proceedings, at every stage of the proceeding, his due process viola- uh, rights are severely violated. And there is no reason to believe that be different at the espionage court in the US where no one has ever been acquitted, where people you know, uh, are being tried based on secret evidence behind closed doors with no public observers. Um, I mean, clearly, all of this is, has nothing to do with, with, uh, with the law. What happens next? Well, he's, he has now appealed um, this second instance decision that allowed his extradition in October to the Supreme Court of the UK. And now uh, the, the UK legal system has to decide whether they will hear the appeal or not. If not, he can still appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, but the problem is that right now, the only discussion is whether the assurances of the US uh, are credible or not. And it's very difficult for any court to say, we don't believe the US assurances. Uh, because they basically would have to say this is not a, a rule of law country anymore if they can't believe. Well, so, wait a second. The fact that Baritzer did not apply the extradition treaty to this extradition hearing 
Is that not something the Supreme Court should hear about and decide about too? Yes, but that you see, that was very smart by her to not extradite him in the first instance, because it means that Julian Assange will not appeal the decision because he doesn't want to be extradited. And she just said she's not going to extradite him. So who is going to appeal is the U.S. And they are only going to appeal those questions that they want to be discussed at the high court. And so they only appealed the questions of the the conditions of detention and the diplomatic assurances and his state of health. And so that's the only thing that was discussed at the high court. And now you can only appeal those questions further to the Supreme Court. So clearly they have to go through that and hopefully they will then be... Wait, Uh, that means that this illegal ignoring of of this treaty has been cut out of the equation. Yes. And it the only is possibility- the point. That is the point right there. Well, well, it's not the only one. Yes, it's one of the points. The other one is press freedom and you know the, the whole right. survey, the illegal surveillance, all his human rights violations, the torture, all of this um, has been cut out of the equation, you know, very, very, uh, you know, smartly by, by the judiciary. So the only way to bring that back in is that once they're through with this proceeding, then his legal team can try to cross-appeal that first instance decision. So they try to do it already, but the, the, the high court has refused to hear it for now. They said they can do this later, which will then artificially extend and prolong the proceeding. And with this, also his detention in Belmarsh by another couple of years. Hence and that's exactly, murder. that's what they want. You see, either... Either he's going to die of a heart attack, uh, you know, or a stroke. He's already had a stroke, incidentally, apparently during the appeals hearing, where the judges were, you know, where they were basically deliberating whether his state of health was sufficient to extradite into the U.S. During that hearing, he had a a slight stroke and was not able to to actually, uh, you know, attend or even observe that hearing through video link because of a stroke. And grotesquely, the judges a couple of weeks later, knowing that without any doubt, decided that he was fit to stand trial in the US and could be extradited. So clearly this has nothing to do with law. This has nothing to do with factual evidence. This is all to do with imposing uh, this precedent, intimidating the world and saying, look, if you ever disclose our secrets, and this is what's going to happen to you. And very openly, they demonstrate that they don't have to respect any laws in doing that. And there's no one that's going to, to protect him. They're and killing that him, really... Niels. They're killing him. They're killing yeah, him but... right in front of us. And yes, pretending and that it's some court proce- bunch of court procedures. That's what's yes. happening. Yes. That is what's happening. And it's unfortunately, I mean, that's happening to many you know, journalists around the world uh, in, in dictatorships. Uh, it's unfortunately also happening happening now in the UK uh, and with the interests of, of the US. Uh, and not, you know, let's be clear about it. You know, the Obama administration refused to prosecute uh, uh, Assange, saying that they couldn't do that because of press freedom. Now, the Trump administration decided to do it, and the Biden administration continues to do that, oh, yeah. knowing very well what, what this is about. And that's deeply shocking to see, you know, what has happened in the U.S. to the First Amendment, what has happened to, you know, the rule of law. And not only in the U.S., what's happened in the U.K., what's happened in Sweden, what's happening in the West, the Western democracies with the rule of law. Now, I can understand if governments have an issue with, you know, confidentiality and things, but okay, then make a convention, you know, make a law. Uh, but, but you can't, you, you know, you can't give up impunity to war criminals, and then persecute the people that provide the evidence for crimes. That really turns justice upside down. But Niels, the Espionage Act is now going to be the thing to use to cover up state crimes. Yes, and look, the the Official Secrets Act in the UK is exactly doing the same thing. Australia is adapting its own law to do the same thing. Sweden has just now passed a law. Sweden. The former safe haven of press freedom has just passed a law on, on, on foreign espionage that makes it a crime to disclose information that is classified by the government 
And it's not even, there's not even a requirement to endanger national security. The only requirement is that it might be prejudicial to the relations of Sweden with other countries or international organizations. I mean, that's a ridiculously low threshold. Yes. And it basically, it basically criminalizes investigative national security uh, uh, journalism, you know, wholesale. And that's in Sweden. And so, so where are we heading? You know, it's, oh. it's really dangerous. Worldwide fascism is where we're heading. I, I would even, you know, in some places call it Orwellianism, like here, the, the, the corruption and where corruption and censorship meet, uh, it, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Well, so, it, certainly know. we're heading into a world that's governed by, 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 by governments that don't want to be accountable to their own people and therefore don't deserve, deserve the name of a democracy. Uh, that are, you know, they don't want to respect their own laws and therefore don't deserve the name of a rule of law nation. But, you know, that, that is serious. And that's also the it's reason terrifying. I decided, I, I decided to, to make so much noise about this case. It's not because Julian Assange as a person is more important than any other you know, torture victim in the world. All of them go through the same type of ordeal. All of them have the same importance. But this case is not really about Julian Assange. It's about you. It's about me. It's about the rights of our children. It's about the sustainability of democracy and the rule of law. And that really is why this is so dramatic and why I think, you know, everybody should read this book. Whether you like Assange or not is really not the point. The point is, do you like your own freedom, your own right to know what your governments are doing with your tax money and the power you have given to them? If you don't want to know, they're going to show it to you in due course. Dr. Niels Melser's book is called The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution, published by Verso. I suggest everybody go out and pick, a cup, pick up a copy. It's uh, an amazing and urgent read. Thank you so much, Neil.